It's time for our weekly conversation with respect to legal issues, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers here in the city of Victoria. We're joined by Michael Mulligan, legally speaking on CFAX 1070. Hey, Michael, how you doing? I'm doing great. Uh, always good to be here. What is on the agenda for this week? Well, the first case on the uh, agenda involves uh, a will uh, and uh, COVID uh, and uh, how a uh, potentially uh, incomplete uh, will uh, can be recognized. Uh, the case involves a, uh, a woman by the name of Mrs. Bishop. She was uh, 76 uh, years of age. Uh, and uh, back in uh, March of 2020, um, she had been uh, working with a lawyer to uh, redo her will. Um, she had a previous will from back in 2014 uh, when uh, her uh, late husband was still alive. Um, and uh, that will from back in 2014 uh, named her now deceased husband as the beneficiary uh, and uh, the balance of her estate to the Kelowna General Hospital Foundation. Um, but between 2014 and 2020, um, Miss uh, Bishop uh, wasn't uh, living in uh, Kelowna, uh, and uh, she had uh, developed a, a very good relationship with her uh, nephew and niece-in-law. Um, she didn't have any children of, uh, of her own, um, and her nephew and niece-in-law were very supportive of her, uh, helping her with uh, daily activities. Uh, she lived with them for a period of time, uh, and they became very close. Um, and so uh, Miss uh, Bishop uh, had uh, spent a period of time working with the lawyer to uh, redraft a new uh, will, um, naming them as her uh, her beneficiaries uh, with uh, some specific gifts to other uh, extended uh, family members. Uh, unfortunately, she had a, an appointment to execute the will or sign it on March the 20th of 2020. Not an auspicious time to be <laughs> scheduling an appointment with one's lawyer. No. Um, she was by that time living in a, a care facility, um, uh, and the uh, care facility had uh, imposed conditions not having to not have residents go out or anyone come in for fear of COVID getting introduced into the care facility. Mm -hmm. um, and so she cancelled uh, the appointment scheduled for March the 20th, 2020. Uh, and so what we are left with was uh, a will from 2014, uh, and then a will which was drafted by the lawyer and which was there's correspondence uh, to her making some minor changes to it, but it wasn't signed. Um, and in British Columbia, we've got an act called the Wills, Estates and Succession Act, WESA, sometimes it's called. Uh, and that act sets out three requirements for a will to be valid. And they include the will has to be in writing. It has to be signed at the end by the will maker. Uh, and it has to be signed by two other witnesses who witnessed the willmaker signing the will. Uh, and the, the starting point under that act is that if any of those three elements are missing, it's not valid. Uh, however, happily, uh, there is a section in WESA, Section 58, that allows a court to cure uh, a will which is defective in some uh, respects. And, and here... Uh, there were a number of defects, including the fact that it wasn't signed at all, this uh, yes. document from 2020, and there were no witnesses to it. Uh, but what there was before the uh, court was an affidavit from the lawyer setting out the correspondence and the uh, what uh, Miss Bishop uh, wished to do. And so that's what the court was faced with. And the way the matter came to court is that the executor of the original will 
came to court and said, look, what should I do with this? Does the money go to the Clona Hospital uh, Foundation, right? Or, yeah. or is the new will valid, in which case it goes to the nephew and niece? Uh, the Kelowna General Hospital Foundation, for its part, uh, sent counsel and argued that the judge ought not to uh, cure the defects in the will and the money ought to go to them. Um, and their arguments included the fact that in order to cure the defects, the judge must be satisfied not only that the document is authentic, which wasn't really a, uh, a a controversy, right? The lawyer had drafted it up and sent it to her, and she'd made some minor changes to it. That wasn't an issue. But there is an issue that the court needs to be satisfied that the document would represent the deliberate, fixed, and final intentions of hmm. the person, right? Yes. And the the hospital society relied on the fact that uh, when Miss Bishop had written back to the lawyer making some minor changes, she wrote, no charities at this time. At this so time. The hospital, correct. So the yeah. hospital foundation said, well, that means maybe she wasn't decided yet. Yeah. Uh, you know, maybe she wished to do something else. But it was abundantly clear that she did not want to leave any money to the Clona General Hospital Foundation. Hmm. Um, the lawyer had uh, her instructions saying she felt it was too far away. She had no connection to it. And that was her husband's idea when he was still alive. And so she definitely wasn't interested in that. And so that's the fact pattern the judge was left with. And it was made slightly more challenging because of an issue whereby the affidavit or the evidence from the lawyer who drafted the will, um, one of the things in it was saying, you know, why did Miss Bishop cancel her appointment on March the 20th, right? Uh, and he said, well, it was canceled. And then he gave an explanation for why she said it was canceled, but he didn't receive that information directly. It was Miss Bishop called his legal assistant, who told him Miss Bishop has canceled the appointment for a reason which he put in his affidavit. But that was viewed as double hearsay. It wasn't something the lawyer had heard. It was something his legal assistant had heard and told him about. Hmm. And so the hospital society said, well, you can't take into account why she canceled her appointment. Who knows why she canceled her appointment on March the 20th, 2020, maybe she was undecided, right? But yes. the judge overcame that, taking into account evidence which was admissible about the nature of the COVID-19 pandemic, the fact that the care home Miss Bishop was living in uh, had a policy which was before the judge that residents couldn't leave the care home and visitors weren't allowed to come into the care home, uh, and so that didn't work. The, the hospital society then tried to argue that uh, in May, uh, there was a policy put in place that allowed wills to be executed remotely. Uh, that was the Kelowna Hospital found General Hospital Foundation's next argument. But the judge found there was no evidence that Miss Bishop was aware of that, uh, and it didn't constitute evidence that uh, what her lawyer had drafted on her instructions wasn't her final intention. And so the result here was that the judge uh, did cure the defects uh, and the un signed, unexecuted will, um, will have effect. And so the uh, the result will be that uh, the niece and nephew, or niece-in-law and nephew, uh, will be the beneficiaries uh, rather than the Clona General Hospital uh, Foundation. And so I rather suspect this may not be the last piece of um, litigation coming out of uh, the sort of terrible state of affairs we've uh, gone through, yeah. uh, because of course the virus has a right a disproportionate effect on uh, older people who will be drafting 
uh, wills of this kind. And yes. so um, I suspect this won't be the last time uh, court is required to sort out, you know, what did the person actually intend and was this, uh, you know, the person's uh, final and fixed uh, uh, decision about what they uh, wanted to happen. So I think happily here it seems clear that Miss Bishop's uh, wishes have been uh, honoured uh, and uh, so the, uh, despite the best efforts of the Clota uh, Hospital Foundation, uh, they're not going to be the, the beneficiary of her estate. Something I haven't really given much thought to, but in hindsight, it makes sense. All the issues that arise from using contemporaneous memorandization to attempt to discern a person's deliberate, fixed, and final intent, because that person's going to keep living after that document is executed, and yet you cannot prove that their intent would not change at some point in the interim. That's right. It's not easy. And so people should, you know, to the extent possible, be aware of those things that I mentioned in terms yeah. of the requirements, right, in writing signed at the end by the willmaker, two witnesses who witnessed the willmaker signing it, right? People should, you know, do everything they can reasonably do to to make sure those requirements are met um, so that this kind of an application uh, doesn't uh, doesn't become necessary. But uh, I think it is a good thing that we do have this residual authority for judges to try to put things right but as you've suggested, that may not always be possible, and sometimes it may be ambiguous, right? Uh, you know, we saw the argument that the hospital um, foundation made here about her comments about, you know, no charities at this time, yeah. um, arguing that somehow she wasn't decided about what she was doing. And so, you know, this kind of a case on slightly different facts could have gone in another direction. Or, you know, for example, if the a uh, lawyer wasn't available to give evidence about the correspondence and what she said and his view that she appeared to be competent to make the will and all of those kinds of things. You could well imagine uh, an unfortunate result where somebody's wishes aren't uh, carried out. So this isn't a suggestion that people should count on judges to fix it after the fact. Uh, the real message here should be do your very best to make sure that the requirements are carried out or are met. Um, so that your wishes can be uh, respected. But we do have this residual authority that allows a judge to try to fix things where uh, some element is missing. All right, let's take our first break. Legally Speaking on CFAX 1070 with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers continues right after this. Back to Legally Speaking on CFAX 1070, Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Michael, where were we? Uh, where Well, where we were, the next uh, case on the agenda uh, involves a proposed class action against the University of Victoria, uh, also dealing with the effects of COVID, and in this case, parking passes. Parking passes? Um, parking passes. So the University of Victoria uh, sold parking passes with a, a, a effective dates between March 16th, 2020, and August 31st, 2020. Uh, the campus, of course, was closed in March of 2020 as a result of the uh, pandemic. Everything went online. Um, and so some of the students there who had purchased parking passes wanted their money back. So and the argument was, look, this was fr- the contract was frustrated, right? The idea that, mm. look, you sold me parking passes and then you closed the university. What am I parking for? Okay. Um, and the university refused to return the money. Uh, And so there's now a proposed class action trying to force the university to return the money. Hmm. Um, And one of the early steps that would occur in a proposed class action, and we've talked about these before, is is the concept of a thing called a certification hearing to determine, is this an appropriate case for a class action, or should all of the people who bought parking passes have to 
bring claims individually, right? Now, here the university argued uh, that the certification uh, shouldn't proceed until the university has a chance to try to uh, cancel or succeed in getting rid of the entire claim, uh, arguing various things, including a general provision of the University Act that shields universities from liability of various kinds, uh, and another argument under the Public Health Act uh, that uh, is designed to prevent actions for damages uh, flowing from people who are required to take action under the Public Health Act. Uh, and really the rub is this, and you might wonder, why, why does mm -hmm. it matter what sort of order these things go in? Well, the reason it matters in class actions is that in BC, once an action is certified as a class action, the person who's the representative plaintiff is no longer personally responsible for legal costs if they don't succeed. On the flip side, you don't get legal costs. But when you've got a you know university student up against the university, those are very different considerations. And yes. so that's why these kinds of things get fought over, even though it might seem like minutia. It has the real effect of this. Now what you've got is this person who would have bought the parking pass, and because the university has succeeded in their argument that they should go first in terms of trying to argue whether the claim can proceed at all before the certification, what it means is that that individual is potentially on the hook for, you know, tens of thousands of dollars in legal fees. And when you're somebody who's got potentially a few hundred dollars at stake over your parking pass, that may not be economically viable. And so that's why this ordering decision will actually have a real impact in terms of how this matter will proceed. Hmm. And I, I must say, when I, when I read it, and sort of the, this case, and it sort of ties in with that last one we spoke about, the, you know, involving the Kelowna General Hospital Foundation uh, trying to uh, maintain its position as the beneficiary of Miss Bishop's will when it was clear that that wasn't what she wanted as a, an outcome. But one of the things that struck me is that when public institutions are making decisions about what legal arguments to make, it, in my judgment, it shouldn't always be the case that you make any and all possible arguments that one might make. Like, for example, the Kelowna General Hospital Foundation clearly had a legal argument about whether Miss Bishop's you know, unsigned will should be recognized or not, right? Yes. Uh, and certainly the University of Victoria had a successful legal argument about the ordering of these things. Yes. But I would advocate for the idea that when you're a public institution, be it the University of Victoria or the Hospital Foundation, you shouldn't be simply making any argument you might make that might advantage you in some way. There should be, a, I think, a, sort of a broader consideration about you know, what's a fair outcome here? Or what are the long-term implications of some of these decisions? Like, for example, the Kelowna General Hospital Foundation making arguments that would uh, benefit it uh, at the expense of the, you know, desire of the 76-year-old widow, um, that has bigger implications than whether they get her estate or not. I would imagine that's going to cause other people to look at it and say, gee whiz, do I want to be leaving money to the Kelowna General Hospital Foundation? Uh, you know, if I change my mind, there might be litigation. That doesn't seem great. Yeah. Uh, and in the case of the University of Victoria, 
It looks like, yeah, indeed, there, there appear to be various statutory arguments about, you know, whether they could limit their liability or uh, avoid doing this. But w- when you look at the bigger picture here, you've got a whole bunch of students who have paid for parking passes, which had no purpose whatsoever. You know, would it not be a better approach if you were, you know, giving instructions to you're a lawyer and you're acting for a public institution like the uh, university or the hospital foundation to take the approach that, you know, try to make a fair decision, right? If you've taken a few hundred dollars from a bunch of students for something that they couldn't use because you shut down the university, might it not be better to approach it from the perspective of what would be a fair outcome rather than what arguments could we make that might have a financial benefit for us? Yeah, And so, that's, I must say, a common thread, I think, of both of those uh, cases. And I don't know how it'll play out. And, you know, maybe the in the case of the parking passes, maybe the, you know, lawyers would do something to shield this, uh, you know, student who would have bought the parking pass from potentially being on the hook for thousands of dollars. But otherwise, you could have a, an unfortunate outcome, even if it's legally successful. And so, uh, I guess uh, that would be my broad message on both of these cases, uh, and it would be a similar message to other government entities, you know, be it ICBC or the provincial government generally. Uh, you know, when you're making decisions about how to deal with uh, legal claims, I don't know that it is always the best approach to make, uh, you know, every argument you could make, even if you might, quote, win, close quote, at the end of the day, uh, because, you know, the University of Victoria's, you know, doesn't exist to be a profit-maximizing entity, and nor should the Kelowna General Hospital Foundation. You would hope that public entities like that would broadly take an approach to arrive at a fair result. And broadly, it seems to me it doesn't, you know, it doesn't seem particularly fair that a bunch of students have paid for parking between March and August of 2020, when plainly that couldn't be used. So, yeah. Perhaps uh, perhaps that will be taken into account when they decide how to uh, continue with that kind of litigation. That's yeah, interesting. Um, does it specify what the language may have been in the original purchase agreement for the parking pass in terms of whether or not it was usable? That's a good question. Uh, the argument here wasn't based on, or the argument being made isn't an argument based on the wording of the contract. It's based on the concept of the frustration of a contract. Okay. And the idea there is that if some intervening event, you know, just prevents a contract from proceeding, the idea is that it's been frustrated, you know, like this, just some unforeseen event. Nobody foresaw the entire university being shut down and all classes being canceled when they sold people parking passes starting on March the 16th. That just wasn't contemplated. And then the plaintiffs are making an alternative argument, which is uh, an equitable one based on the concept of unjust enrichment. Hmm. Um, And so, you know, we'll see how the legal arguments play out. And, you know, perhaps perhaps the university gets traction on one of its statutory defenses. You know, my comments aren't a uh, aren't designed to sort of be comments on whether those things have merit or not. Okay. They may. But if at the end of the day, the result is you wound up keeping a bunch of parking money from students who couldn't <laughs> park there. Really? Is that what we're okay, doing? Okay, fair Why? enough. Why? <laughs> you know, yeah, you know, live back, move on. Well, you, you know, know as, as, as a member of the legal profession, you know how much litigators enjoy winning when they're engaged in litigation. But I suppose it's always of benefit to take that step back and look at factors beyond those in the courtroom. So I, I, I totally see your point. So thank you. It, and, 
and the lawyers doing what they're instructed to do, right? You know, it, yes. it's not the lawyer deciding those things. It's tell your lawyer, hey, come to a fair resolution of this thing, you know, rather than fight tooth and nail over everything one might fight over. And so really it's a decision for the client uh, but you would just hope a public institution would uh, take a broader approach. Yeah. Another public institution in our next story, in this case, the University of British Columbia. Two and a half minutes remain in our segment today. Yeah, this is a very interesting one and one that may not be done. Uh, it's a case of a fellow there who was a, an academic advisor at the University of British Columbia um, in the Faculty of Arts. And as an academic advisor, he would offer support to undergraduate students uh, working with their academic progress and other aspects of their lives. Now, he started using uh, some uh, dating apps uh, over there uh, that were location-based, and they happened to be dating apps that were for gay men. Mm -hmm. um, and he wound up uh, having, uh, as a result of using those, uh, liaisons with uh, a number of people at the university, including 20 who were students at the university. Hmm. And when the university found out about that, uh, they fired him, arguing he was in a conflict of uh, interest between, uh, you know, his personal relationships with the students and his obligations as an academic advisor. Hmm. And that produced a human rights complaint uh, by this fellow, by the, human, by the uh, academic advisor, uh, arguing that he had been fired as a result of his sexual orientation. Uh, and he was arguing that, look, people who used uh, uh, straight dating apps, uh, there's no indication they were being fired. Interesting. And so his argument was, look, that's why I've been terminated. Uh, but he didn't succeed uh, at the Human Rights Tribunal. And so uh, he brought a judicial review uh, to the B.C. Supreme Court. Um, and where there's a judicial review of a, a tribunal like that, they apply the standard of patent unreasonableness in order to overturn a decision. Uh, and so the court decision that just came out uh, again dismissed the claim of the academic advisor on the judicial review. And essentially the judge said, look, uh, even though uh, the academic advisor's arguments could have supported the inferences favorable to him, which is to say that he was fired because of his sexual orientation. The fact that the tribunal took a different view of it and didn't draw that inference doesn't make the decision patently unreasonable. Uh, and so uh, on that analysis, the decision of the Human Rights Tribunal to deny his claim uh, will stand. Uh, and so it is an interesting fact pattern, and this was in the BC, um, the Supreme Court of BC. It'll be interesting to see whether uh, anything more comes of that. Uh, but uh, it's an example that uh, when you get an unfavorable decision in a tribunal like that, you don't get to go to court and have a do-over. You've got to show that there was some serious error made uh, in terms of how the decision was arrived at. So an interesting fact pattern, and that may not be the end of that one. Michael Mulligan, Legally Speaking, every week here during the second half of our second hour on Thursdays on CFAX. Thanks so much. Until next week. Thank you. Stay safe. Have a great day. All right. You too.